Good morning and welcome to episode 88 of the Cooch Street Podcast. This morning we're joined by award-winning actor, broadcaster, writer and editor Ellen Kushner, whose novel Swords Point was recently released as part of Audible's Neil Gaiman's Presents audio imprint to discuss Riverside, art and the rise of the audiobook. Good morning, Ellen. Good morning, Jonathan. <laughs> How are you this morning? I'm, I'm fine. And I'm, I, can I make fun of you for saying oh, it's please. morning when it's not in well, New York City? You yes. absolutely should. It's entirely appropriate. Good, good. I like it, though. I, I like thinking about how it's, it's morning for you and we decadent people are just staying up all night. Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> and good, good morning, Gary, as well. And good evening as well. This is Ellen. This is our standard opening. It's good morning, good evening. And if people don't know where we are, it just makes no sense to them at all, which we enjoy. And, and I think this is probably not the first time you've had people in three different time zones. No, no. We've had people in four different time zones, mm-hmm. which has made it very interesting at times as you try and map people around the world and get them all to fit in at once. Mm-hmm. And then of oh, course, we kind of did that. <laughs> and then there's the obligatory sort of you know, weather report where you go on at some length about how it's hot and sticky here and probably cold and wet where Gary is and probably hopefully perfect where you are. Well, consider it set. Okay. Wow. What? Okay. I'll tell you what brought up the idea of getting together to talk about audiobooks. Uh, Late last year, I was fortunate enough to hear the audiobook of Swords Point that you did for uh, for for the Neil Gaiman Presents line. And the thing that struck me most about it was how it was different from all the other audiobooks I'd encountered. Uh, I'd only really encountered two versions of the audiobook a single monologue and a full cast recording. And yet here was this sort of augmented recording that you did where there was additional sounds, a little bit of extra dialogue, a little bit of music, but not, I guess you'd call a full production with a multiple, with a, with a large cast. How did you come to be doing, first of all, Swords Point as an audiobook? I wanted to. Um, actually, it's a slightly longer story than that, which is that my producer and director, the fabulous Sue Zizza of Sue Media Productions, is an old-time uh, radio drama person, producer, director, sound effects person with her partner, David Shin. And I approached her when I had finished writing with my writing partners, the filmmaker musicians Elizabeth Schwartz and Yale Strom, uh, our the feminist magic realist shtetl musical The Witches of Lublin mm-hmm. and we wanted to do it as a radio drama and I have friends who love and work with Sue and they all said talk to Sue so we ended up producing this whole thing with her and after a really good experience with that and I should also add for our American listeners and I guess really internationally now uh, that the show's going to air again on public radio for the Passover season in April and uh, you can check that out at uh, thewitchesoflublin.com. Excellent. And, um, and in fact, we're encouraging people right now to write to your local public station and say, hey, are you airing this? If not, you really should. <laughs> so that, that whole project's been going on. And, and I guess I should also say for the, for the fantastical fiction audience that not only did we get Neil Gaiman to play the love interest, but the great, great Simon Jones of Hitchhiker's Guide to the oh, Galaxy wow. is, is Neil's name. That's fantastic. Evil Polish Count is Simon Jones. Uh, it was great, great fun doing it. And Tova, Tova Feldsche, the American actress, is the lead, the matriarch of this remarkable group of women. So it was an all-star cast. It was a great experience for all of us. And uh, Just I guess it would just be too trash to say it's also available on CD and on audible.com. Because Sue's oh, works a lot of audiobooks. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's also available on audible.com as a as a 2-hour production with with an entire extra hour of music by the great Yale Strom. So, anyway, that all happened. And Sue came to me and said, "Ellen, you're you're pretty good at all this. Have they have you they ever done your audiobooks?" And I said, "No, they're too old. Like my novels came out at a time when audiobooks either didn't sure. exist or were not an automatic thing. Now my sense is that every novel that comes out is going to be an audiobook as well. And my most recent novel, you know, Six, was Privilege of the Sword, and I didn't make the cut, or it just wasn't the style in those days. One of the and, things I wanted to ask you, though, was, uh, uh, since you did mention Swords Point, was, was there any thought, and it just occurred to me this afternoon, uh, that this is kind of a 25th anniversary edition? Isn't that about the right uh, date for Swords Point? Thank you for saying that, Gary. Yes, it is. <laughs> and Holly Black was the person who told me that. I mean, it was kind of a coincidence. Uh-huh. Holly, Holly's a we always loved the book, and she said, you know, do you realize you're coming up on your 25th anniversary, you should do something special, and of course I was too late. <laughs> Wait a minute, we're doing the audiobook, that could be special. That's the so, 25th yeah, no, anniversary, okay. Isn't that scary? Well, now, Neil has done some semi-produced uh, audio things himself, I'm thinking of snow glass apples and that sort of thing, there were somewhere in between being fully produced and simply being read, am I right about that? I don't know for sure, but Sue actually, I think, was the producer on that. Oh, wow. Okay, so she was. I think she was. And so, if I'm wrong, it would be so rude for me to stop and Google, but I know yeah. she's done work with, with Neil's texts before. Sure. So he kind of knew her, and I'm oh, pretty okay. sure it was Snow Glass that she did. So she's got this vision, and all we were going to do was just go through my novels, do them as audiobooks, have me read them, mm-hmm. but she started to say, well, what if we did something a little different with some of them? And I know Sue's a little different. I said, oh, sure, Sue, we can talk about that. And suddenly, everything kind of came together at once in this perfect snowstorm. And um, Neil Gaiman Presents was looking for books. I know I know Neil. Sue knows Neil. We asked him, was he interested? He went to Audible. Everybody was interested. They gave us a little seed money so that we could do this rather ambitious thing we ended up doing that you were referring to a moment ago, Jonathan, where it... To do a whole full cast was really not feasible for two reasons. One, it's wildly expensive. And two, I, to be really honest, I wanted to read my own book. I didn't want a bunch of actors reading my book. Uh, I mean, if they'd given us a million dollars, would I have allowed them? Probably. But, but <laughs> you know, it wasn't on the table, and I was actually sort of pleased. Uh, I kind of wanted to, because I felt like part of the value that I was offering with this novel was, hey, Ellen Kushner, who's a pretty good reader, is going to read her novel for you just the way she hears it in her head, more or less. Um, But then the idea of adding in these elements that Sue wanted to add, which included sound effects and original music, which was really exciting to work with a young composer, Mm. Nathaniel Tronerud out in California, and then to bring in actors for key moments where we both kind of talked about where would it be the most interesting to have more voices? Where would it be the most beneficial? Where would it also cover up my deficiencies as a, uh, a Jim, oh God, I almost said Jim Carrey, what's his name? <laughs> um, the guy who did the Harry Potters, who does nine million voices. Oh, oh. Jim, oh, I know the guy you mean, but I forgot, forgot his name. Oh, this is terrible. See, I'm familiar with the Stephen Fry recordings. I've never heard the, the other ones. Jim Dale. Jim yes. Dale. Right. Oh yeah, he does everything, doesn't he? I mean, he just he, yeah. He records uh, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things. So, because you are a professional voice, and you and and I uh, admired your radio program for years. I should put that in as well. Uh, oh, but 
a lot of writers aren't. A lot of writers are really better off not recording their own works, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been reading aloud all my life. I've been performing. I've been on the radio. And also, and I really, hmm, if only this were a call-in show, I'd love to know what authors think. I write for the ear. Uh-huh. While I'm working on a piece, I read it out loud. Um, that's part of how I engage with it. And I'm hearing it in my head. I, I've been thinking and talking to people over the years about how people are engaging with their text. And some people are a lot more visual than I am. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, what they're writing is a, is a movie that they're seeing. And I, I tend to be writing for the ear, but partly in terms of the way my dialogue is pitched and the fact that there is so much dialogue. But also, I just... I can hear the thing being read aloud while I write it. So I, it seems natural to me. And what I wonder, though, is if other people who write to be read aloud in their heads, whether they are able to read it and have it sound the way they hear it, or whether they simply lack that capacity, because I guess not everybody has it. There's always been a group of writers like that in the field. And I mean, I, I think about Howard Waldrop, who's known for it, Andy Duncan, some right. other people. What occurs to me is, you know, listening to you talk about it, in some ways, is the audiobook the ideal form for your fiction, though? If you, if it's an, a a heard thing in your head, if it's something that you, in a, in a sense, as you're drafting, perform, is there an element where something like this, what's ha- what's been done with the audio the audiobook of Swordspoint, is actually the ideal form for it? What a shocking thought! And I'm going to say no. Okay. Because I think the thing that is one of the most interesting things about being a writer is is the place where you have to let go and let the reader own the piece. I always feel like that the piece, the novel, the story, whatever, only comes to life when you have handed it to someone else and they've brought their own experiences and passions and what they had for lunch to it and it becomes a new object every time I think that as with film when you read aloud you've locked in certain things you know I hate the way things get locked in Mm -hmm. you know an illustration on the cover of a book suddenly you can only ever see the character looking like that illustration and and that's a lock in that I'm I'm a it. you know Uh, so I think the purest way to engage with text is for somebody to just read it with their own eyes and hear it with their own ears does that mean they sometimes don't hear what I want them to hear yeah Uh, (laughs) but it also means that there's all sorts of latitude for things I haven't thought of, and indeed that connects very nicely to what I bet is your other question, which is when an act is loud and it's not my impulse as a giant control freak is to go, no, no, that's all wrong but sometimes it's better, and you learn from hearing someone else read your work things you didn't even realize were there I wonder if some of this has to do with your own background, though, because you know you're, you're f- certainly familiar with lots of oral traditions, with Celtic songs, with Yiddish oral traditions. With uh, There are a lot of oral cultures that inform your work anyway, and that seem to me to make it more amenable to that sort of thing. Uh, whereas, uh, so if I can think of somebody, um, I, there's no point in reading Isaac Asimov aloud. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> so. To be honest, it's fairly flat prose. Um, there are other... I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings. I, I think it... I, in my opinion, it goes from one writer to the next. I mean, uh, Jonathan mentioned Andy. I mean, if you've heard Andy read once, you can't ever read an Andy Duncan story again without hearing that voice. Um, yes, that's true. Or Jim Kelly is another Jim great, Kelly great... Jim Kelly is very good. Another example I always use is Garrison Keylor. 
Garrison Keillor was not funny until I heard him read it aloud. He was, I, read, I read his book was completely unfunny until I heard him. That's true. I had that experience with Grace Paley when I was in college, and she came to read, and I, I suddenly got it. Mm-hmm. And actually, that did happen to me with my work. I did a reading at Glasgow, World, Worldcon, and it turned out that my Spanish publisher and my French translator were both in the room, and I didn't know it. Yeah. And they heard me read, I think I was reading Swords Point, I'm not sure, I was reading one of the Riverside books. And they came up to me afterwards and said, we didn't realize how funny it was, that'll make a difference in the way we translate. I had an experience like that, well, no, one of the best readers I ever heard, and I never realized how funny he was until I heard him read, was Roger Zelazny. Uh, who, uh, at the end of his life, was making part of his income by doing audio recordings of other people's works. He was recording Robert Block. He was astonishing, and I remember he was reading probably part of one of the Amber things, and it was utterly hilarious, and I'd not read it that way at all. Mm-hmm. That, I want to hear that now. <laughs> I know, I, I hope, I and mean, he did record it, I believe. Um, but, but yeah, that kind of thing, it, it obviously varies from, from one person to the next, but uh, I, I wonder, because um, there, okay, here's a, here's a name out of left field uh, that people would not think in terms of reading aloud, is Gregory Benfrey. Uh, and Gregory <laughs> believes that he writes in, he writes in very, in, in his best writing, writes in very Faulknerian cadences, kind of long periodic sentences when he gets really going, and it, I, I've only heard him read once or twice, but I've talked to him a lot. And that kind of Alabama slash Mississippi lilt, it's not quite a southern accent, but it's that lilt, it's the kind of voice that Faulkner had, makes his uh, hard SF much more approachable, it seems. Okay, I take it all back. Listen to me read my work. It's the only way you can possibly understand it. <laughs> I, don't believe, I don't believe that, actually. A friend of mine did say something which I think is very germane, particularly for audiobooks, to, to my experience, they said, audiobooks are the best way to reread something. Ah, oh, I've heard that from a bunch of people about this. You know, that, you know, that when you've gone and you, you've laid it down in your own mind, you've experienced it fresh, then you come back and you get an, an alternate interpretation. And also there's this thing, and maybe this is a, a fault in or how I am to read and interpret things, I find it's easier for your attention to drift when you're listening to an audiobook as, to, as compared to when you're actually reading a physical book. Uh, and so the experience of having already read it kind of helps fill in a few gaps as well in case your attention does, you know, sort of drift, which hopefully it won't, but, you know, will mm-hmm. occasionally happen. I think one That's of the things... interesting. Oh, go, go ahead, Alan. Yeah. No, I, I was just thinking about how when I read Swords Point, aspects of certain characters came through to me in ways they never had. Uh, I mean, I learned some interesting things by hearing it aloud and by hearing it all in one gulp, too. Mm. Well, I, I guess that, that's another thing that, occurred, that I, I wanted to talk to you about, and that is, it's a more sort of, I guess, broader question about audiobooks, you know, given that you are more active in them. Why, do, First of all, why do you think they seem to be so much on the rise now, and particularly in the last, say, 24 months? I remember Locus tried to get an audiobook reviewer a couple of years back that didn't particularly work. Now they have another one. There seems more interest in it. As you say, quite rightly, it seems like every book that comes out is getting an audiobook version. Why the rise for it, do you think? I don't have a theory about that. I should, but I don't. I have, uh, I have, I have a theory, but you go ahead. I want to hear your theory. Preventive medicine. Huh? What? Well, podcasts, audiobooks uh, are time commitments. My concern has always been 
the number of hours it takes to listen to an entire audiobook or to devote an hour to listening to this podcast. But if you're working out, if you're in a preventive medicine program and you're on the elliptical or you're jogging or that sort of thing, you're going to listen more. But weren't you jogging 10 years ago? Well, not you personally, Gary, but... <laughs> but they were jogging. People 10 years ago were jogging and all they had to do was avoid cats and dogs and traffic and now they can listen to novels. Could, uh, probably. <laughs> could, could, could we suggest I it? it, it I just don't know why it's now, unless it's. Is it just the technology now exists yeah. and It's so it? easy. Is it because. I think that's it. Yeah. I think it's, you know, like, what is it? 96% of Americans have some cell phones. Yeah, and you can download and anything. Most of them are smartphones. And now it's easy. I mean, how did I find out about SourcePoint? I got a link sent to me by Neil for a review copy. I had no idea he was doing Neil Gaiman Presents particularly. I had no idea about uh, SourcePoint. I then ended up subscribing to Audible, and they send me stuff all the time. I don't have to think about it. It downloads onto my computer, into my, onto my iPod or whatever I'm listening to. Them. So it's never a difficult thing to go looking for, where five or ten years ago, audiobooks were something you searched for. There were that odd couple of shelves at the front of Barnes & Noble rather than something that was right in front of you at home, I think. I think that's true. It does. Right. Fair it, enough. Yeah, uh, and and I, I mean, remember. Do you, do you think it's? I don't know the history of. Yes, well, I, I can tell you when I, I didn't buy a lot of them. I mean, uh, uh, the public libraries always had audiobooks back back when there were cassette tapes, and there would be like a box of fifteen cassette tapes, um, and that was just too much trouble to listen to an audiobook that way. It's the download, then, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Let me ask you this. It's, it's the fact that a non-physical object that comes right into your machine, that goes right into your ear, that you're used to having against your ear, mm-hmm. so it's just a, a logical progression. And, and certainly, you find yourself looking, I mean, let's say, at rereading. I mean, I've been following the, the, the books that Neil's overseeing coming out, and they tend to be ones that are that they're directly from my reading background, which makes them very attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because it does give writers, I guess, another way to engage with their readers. I mean, obviously you've had an enormous response to the audio book, you know, and that must have been very gratifying. Oh, it was crazy. I really wasn't expecting it. I really wasn't. And I think it was just the, the concordance of existing Swordplay fans who wanted to hear me read it, fans of Neil's who wanted to see what he had chosen, mm-hmm. and then there started to be buzz which was also associated for audio people and even audio drama people with what is this thing they're calling the new illuminated technique. You know, Sue Zizza did some articles about it, and we, we all talked about it, and Neil talked about it. You know, what is this thing they're doing, and is it good, and is it interesting? And I know for some audiobook professionals, it's been, and is it the, the new wave of a way to create extra texture and interest in an audiobook without having to go the whole full task extremely mm-hmm. costly and, and uh, not just in terms of the actors, but in terms of the production time sort of thing. Can you give some of that joy? And I do have to say, because I don't want to forget to say it, in some ways it sounds really stupid. Like, if you're going to do full cast, do full cast. If you're not, don't. What is this weird kind of hybrid thing? And the way we did it, at least, we tried to keep the, uh, the sound effects and the music in there in such a way that you never were solely listening to me read so that it wasn't a sharp change that you always had the sense that you were in a, a slightly more more 3D sound world 
and then when it goes into the the full cast and full found um, stuff, to me it's like you're 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 falling asleep listening to something, and then suddenly you start to dream it alive. Hmm. That's, that's, that's the effect at our best that I think we, we achieve on this and that we're trying to achieve. So that you slip seamlessly into the full cast. You can't see me waving my arms around now, but I am. Mm-hmm. Sort of wind of the good witch fashion. And it doesn't feel abrupt and awkward. Well, having listened to it, that's exactly how you experience it. I mean, I found it to be... How do I put it? It, it was like the best version of reading in a way because to me, well, when I read, I read, I guess, in my own voice, in my mind. And when a, when a story comes alive, it doesn't actually come, to, come alive for me as a 70 millimeter full widescreen production, but it's augmented bits. And what I found as well is, and this is something about why I like it a lot more than I like a full cast production, it keeps that consistency of voice that you get when you're reading a novel itself. I mean, a play or a film is created to have multiple voices and faces and whatever else in it. A book, whilst it has multiple characters or not, nonetheless has that one consistency or constancy of the author's voice. And this illuminated production approach seems to preserve that in a way that's really, really positive for audiobooks without stripping it back to that bare minimum that sometimes feels very stark someone just sitting in a room and hopefully being interesting I get that in writing that's brilliant thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which is all of course an enormous advertisement for, for the book now it's not the only audio book that you're working on uh, is it true that at the moment you're working on a, a new audio book for um, the Border Town anthology that you edited Yes, I'm sort of being the Cardinal Richelieu of the Bordertown audiobook. Technically, I have nothing to do it do with it, but actually, I'm masterminding a really, really interesting book. Um, I, I inserted myself as a reader already over their protests that they didn't need me uh, because, basically, can, can I tell you what we're sure, doing? Sure, please, please do. Um, it's coming out in April to coincide with the release of the paperback for mm-hmm. uh, well. Watertown, which is the anthology that I co-edited with Holly Black with Terry Windling's Blessing, since it is a continuation of the mm. series that she founded. So Holly, and it's with Brilliance Audio, and they're based in Michigan, and Holly had gone out there about six months ago to do um, her short story collection, mm-hmm. and while she was there, they wisely had her read her introduction to Welcome to Watertown. And I said, well, and then it's, we're having two narrators, two professional narrators, one reading all the stories with women, uh, protagonists and one reading a guy reading all the, the male protagonists and I said well that'll sound really stupid if you have one of them read Terry Windling's intro so why don't you just let me go into the studio here I know how to read and I will read Terry's intro and gee you know while I'm in there I'll just read all the poems for you because it would be good to have those in a different voice and you don't have to use me I just, I'll just read them for you and one reason that I was extremely eager to have myself reading them was because I'm we decided it would be really cool to have some music. So I talked to John Grace, who is the SF guy who acquired it, and said, don't you think it would be great if we took this? Some of the poems in the Welcome to Bordertown book are, in fact, song lyrics, particularly Mm -hmm. Steve Bruce's Run Back to the Border. Yeah, you know where I'm going. So why don't we just 
have some musician set them to music so that they actually sound like. So John was really enthusiastic, and we talked about, could they have a contest, could we do this, could we do that? And actually, I think it was Terry Windling, when I was discussing this with her, said, why don't you ask Drew Miller, who was the original Boiled in Lead guy. Yep. Boiled in Lead was one of the bands in the 80s when we were writing Border Town that really influenced us. And I think Emma Bull even sang with them at one point. Yes. So mm-hmm. I, I'm still just with Drew. I said, Drew, do you want to do this thing? And, you know, Steve Bruce just moved back to Minneapolis. Maybe he could sing the, you know, the track. Uh, so anyway, yes, we did that. And I wish I could play it for you. Um, actually, I probably could. It's on my machine. Um, it's kicks. It just kicks. He did this fully produced thing. Yep. And I said, well, while we're doing that, it's going to sound dumb. There's just one piece of music. Why don't we have a little music bed under all the other ones? And we are in the process of doing that right now. <laughs> oh, oh, and I forgot. The whole reason they're letting me do this is I said, I was going through uh, the poems back when it wasn't going to be me reading them, and I said, you know, okay, we should have a woman read this one, we should have a man read that one, and here's Neil Gaiman's poem. You know, I said, I can't really hear any voice but Neil's in this poem. Do, do you think, I know he's in and out of the studio all, all the time, these days, maybe next time he's in the studio, he could just read it for us. Mm. And lo, he was. <laughs> and my producer at Audible, who's also his producer, uh, just said, oh yeah, he's coming in on Friday. I'll give it to him. <laughs> so it was just this amazing set of things all coming together at the same time and a lot of really great support from John Grace at Brilliance. And I, we are going to have, I think, a quite an amazing, amazing audiobook as a result. Is it going to be in April? Is it uh, going to be available? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Unless something goes wrong, which it could because we're still in production. Okay. And do you think it'll, it may lead to audiobooks of the earlier Board of Ten material? I would really hope so. I would I mean, love it if that happened. Because I believe pretty much this stuff's all out of print at the moment, isn't it? I mean, the previous books. Yeah, all the earlier Border Town books, which were published from, was it 85 through yeah, 93? The, the, la- the last one that Tor did, the Essential Border Town, yeah. uh, which is a standalone anthology, even though everyone thinks because of the title it's a collection, that's still in print from Tor, but the previous anthologies um, are out of print. Will Shetterly and Emma Bull's novels, I can't remember one of them is and one of them isn't. Okay. But yes, no, they're, they're actually the plan is for Terry to supervise ebooks of the earlier anthologies, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that's had, and they'll be available soon. Um, but no, I think audiobooks is obviously the next way to go. Now, 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 since you so enjoy the role of Cardinal Richelieu, obviously. <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> really do. Have you considered combining this stuff? I mean, for example, taking art and audio books and combining them in augmented e-books. No. Wait a minute. What would I have to do? Let me think oh, about no. this. I mean, I've seen it done once or twice. I mean, basically, it's where you synchronize the audio track with the e-book, itself, with, with the e-book <gasps> so that you can read and you yeah. can listen and you can add art and interactivity and all that kind of stuff. I've always wanted to do that. And because it's basically scoring, it's scoring yeah. your book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I've actually seen a ver- one or two early versions of this sort of thing happening. And Does it, work? it can do, yeah, really well, particularly if they pay attention to it. I remember having this discussion with somebody, and I, I remain incredibly surprised at their lack of interest. I said that I thought that uh, HarperCollins nation- internationally were sitting on this enormous resource where they could create the greatest app book thing ever exactly. with Lord of the Rings. 
because you have this great text. You have more additional material than ever created for anything else just about. There must be more artists' interpretations of it, more audio interpretations of it. You could get an audio interpretation. You could have it so that it changed art every time you loaded it, all kinds of stuff. Now, at a slightly less, I mean, you've already got basically an ebook version of Swords Point readily available. You've got an audio book. There's art for it that exists. It could all synchronize in a really interesting kind of a way, or so it seems to me. Well, that seems to me, I, I, that's interesting. I mean, because, and I, I want to hear what you think about this album, because you can make these things happen. But you have, obviously, iPads and, and, and Nooks and Kindle Fires out there that are waiting for opportunities to, to use their multimedia capabilities with, with narratives. And I don't know if anybody's doing that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. My guess is somebody wants to, mm-hmm. and it's also possible where you might find stuff like that is, is you know the very fringy kind of uh, online comics that kind of thing. Crazy stuff's happening yeah. with those. Mm-hmm. My guess is yeah, would be very labor intensive and very code intensive, and until somebody can make money with it, it's probably happening around the fringes. Oh, and know. then once it gets perfect, and also to get people to want it, you mm-hmm. know, would people? that kind of experience? I don't know. I, the idea, I always wanted to um, to score a, a, a book that one's eyes, but now it's, it's like, why even bother to score a read-aloud book, which is what we do a little bit in, in the Swords Point. I, I don't know. I don't know. And then and then there are issues, i got to tell you, too. Mm. Like, there's classic music that I'm dying to use, but I would have to pay a lot of money. Sure. Uh, sure. Because it wouldn't be out of because the performance even if it was by you know like to me Lord of the Rings is Sibelius it would be so much fun to score all Lord of the Rings with Sibelius and English folk music but you know unless the performance itself is out of copyright you'd, you'd need right. to sure. get that but yeah dream on well, you, also, you also run into oh, crusty old oh, bastards like me who are thinking I I hello yeah yeah they were here okay alright um one of the things that always bothered me about movie adaptations, of, let's say, I don't know, uh, why did why did ancient Rome always do everything to uh, 19th century symphonic music? Uh, in other words, <laughs> the kind of thing that happens, if I, if, if I hear, one of the things I kind of like about uh, some of the Shores music in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, there's at least some vaguely Anglo-Saxon Celtic feel to it. One of the dangers of scoring something like that, when you start about talking about bringing in Sibelius or Rimsky korsakov is you're creating a kind of cultural mashup, aren't you? I mean, to some extent, you're, you've got a medieval story with, uh, with, with a Wagner soundtrack, which is fine, but you're, you've got layers of interpretation of the story just by virtue of using that music. Correct, but think of it as a Shakespeare production these days. They're never done in full Elizabethan. Right. You, know, you pick your period and you shape the artistic experience that your audience gets. Uh, yeah, there was, a, what was it, A Knight's Tale that used a rock soundtrack for, uh, maybe... Oh, it's awful. Well, but they, that's, that's kind of my point. Or the Marie Antoinette with all the, with all the rock. No, I actually like it. I like that kind of thing. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh-huh. But I like the idea of that. I mean, in a way, that's what I did with Swords Point. I, I, ma- I mashed a bunch of periods and a bunch of literary conventions, and, um, I, I kind of... And it's very much like the work of um, Peter Sellers, the director, not the actor, the director, Peter Sellers with an A. And when he pulls it off, it is just so exciting. Um, 
and that's all I can say is, you know, good art is good and bad art is depressing, but, you know, you got to at least leave the possibility open that somebody can pull something like that off. Well, I think you can make the argument that fantasy... I, I guess the challenge must be... No the fantasy does leave that possibility open because, as you mentioned, there's a kind of mashup in in Swords Point. It's easy to do that sort of thing in a vaguely medieval fantasy because you're not really trying to represent a historical period. I'm thinking of, I mean, somebody who'd be easy, the easiest person in the world to probably score music to would be Michael Swanwick because he uses anything he wants. It'll be science fiction. It'll be Cole Porter, the next paragraph, and the next paragraph after that, it's a horror story. So you, you've just got open territory for scoring it the way you want. Sure. And he's brilliant, and he can do it. And he can so, do it. So, yeah. Actually, he did no, that. No, I did think some, you're, 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 changing, you're turning your argument in yourself. I, I guess I am. Right. You're right. All right. I'm, 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 I was just going to say, I've, I've conclusively proved that I was wrong in what I said, so we can go on. Good work. Good work. The only thing I was going to say on the subject, I guess, is the challenge is to make sure that what you create out of your mashup is its own consistent thing. Yes. You know, that it has its own texture that works for itself, uh, whereas when it doesn't work, it's just a whole bunch of dissonant stuff, and then that's what you don't want to have happen. Well, exactly. You need, the artist has to be in control of their work. Sure. Uh, there's a line I love from a poem, uh, Art being bartender is never drunk. Ah. So, so tell me. And obviously, there are the yeah. grand and glorious moments when you're creating the work when you are drunk as hell and and you're just going on pure instinct and intuition. But there's a point where you need to be in control. Right, but, but, but what you're in control of, my argument is that what you're in control of in a fantasy work is different and more fluid than what you might be con in control of if you were George Eliot, let's say. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go. What I'm saying is you can tell the difference between a work where somebody had a bunch of cool ideas and doesn't really know what they're doing and doesn't really have the brains or the craft oh, right. or the education to carry it off versus somebody who knows exactly what they're doing, knows they're messing with you, is having a great time, mm -hmm. and expects you to, too. Yeah, exactly. Well, I certainly will say that that's what struck me with the Swords Point audiobook. First of all, when I when I encountered what the idea was, my first thought was, this could be a very dissonant experience if it's not done exactly right. In fact, initially I couldn't quite imagine before I listened to it what exactly right might be, but it actually blended really, really beautifully and very effectively and augmented the book in a really, really um, powerful way, I thought. Well, let me give you an example, because, in fact, I had to sell the whole concept of the mashup um, to my producer-director and also to the uh, composer whom she was instructing. Um, the first set of music that I heard uh, sounded very 19th century romantic, except for the ones that sounded like a Ren Faire. Okay. And I had a hysterics, mm. because I... And, and when I went to my producer and said, ah, no, 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 she said, but you said it should sound a little, you know, the 19th century and a little this, a little that. But what they'd done with some of the pieces sounded like Chopin, some of them, I swear to God, like a Ren Faire. It was so depressing. <laughs> and I had to say to them, look, you really need to believe me that the, the setting I've created doesn't look like any of your preconceived notions of the Middle Ages or the Renaissance. It looks a little like this, a little like this, and a little like this. 
if you play a Ren Faire thing, people are immediately, the minute they hear that, that's like a film music cue to, you know, gestures and funny caps and, mm-hmm. you know, all that Ren Faire crap. Jonathan, do you know what I'm talking about? We'll yeah, we're back in medieval times. Yeah. So I had to say, you need, and the, the composer who's learning to, is in, in grad school, learning to compose for film, said, but then people will be confused. And I said, yes, that's it. Do that. I want you to do that. And so then we got to talking about mannerist, you know, Renaissance mannerist composers like Jeff Waldo and Kapsberger, where if you listen to them now, they almost sound like rock and roll, but they were in the 16th century. And... Uh, so he started to play with that, and one of the first things he did was he had this very beautiful romantic tune that was just so late 19th century, it really bothered me, because it was slurpy. It, it tipped over into slurpy. And he said, well, what if I just made it sound like an electric guitar? Mm. But, well, that might be going too far, but sure, let's hear it. And it works. It's perfect. It's one of the big themes in the thing. And all he did was change the instrumentation, mm-hmm. you know, kept exactly the tune. I think he just flipped a switch, and blammo, it just got edgy. Maybe one of the things that makes this so appropriate for these sort of produced or semi-produced audiobooks, when you use the term mashup, mashup seems to be a uh, a characteristic of well, 21st century art in general, and it, it's something that you could see growing over the last 20 or 30 years. But now it's almost it, it, it's almost a convention. It's almost a genre unto itself. Um, and I was thinking, uh, uh, one of the things I did want to ask you about Ellen before we got uh, past the point where I could ask it. Was wasn't uh, Manor Punk a version, a very early version of mashup? I mean, way before anybody had heard of Seth Graham Smith. You, you and 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 and, and Delia and uh, the Porcelain Dove, which I think was one of the early masterpieces of this, were doing that ironic Austin-esque voice in the service of what otherwise looked like it might be a traditional fantasy. Oh yeah, uh, it was actually Don Keller who identified this as being something that my whole generation of mostly women, although not exclusively, was doing, um, including uh, Caroline Stevermer, of course, and uh, Sherwood Smith and Emma Bull to some extent. Um, basically, we were a bunch of women who loved fantasy and loved Jane Austen and Georgia Hare mm-hmm. and Dorothy Dunnett, and those were our passions and our influences. And I remember the stress we all felt of wait a minute, you know, this is like Tolkienville, and yet we're putting in, you know, this sort of Regency's trappings, or Regency flourishes to it. Can we do this? But it was what we wanted to do, it was what was fun for us to do, so we just did it. Uh, and, of course, it takes a critic then go, hey, y'all, look what you're doing. Why are you doing this? How are you doing this? So they named us. We didn't name ourselves. It didn't even occur to us. We were just doing um, that thing that uh, Swanwick calls the, the rum and the lonely. Yeah. And, uh, it just, I, I think actually Kelly was right that it was generational. So does that mean it's a period? Okay, is Manor Punk now a description of a particular period of fantasy writing? Um, no, I, I think it has become mainstream, as, as very often happens with something that's innovative mm-hmm. but appealing. Uh, Manor Punk was, was originally a tongue-in-cheek kind of joke. What mm-hmm. we were calling it, uh, Keller asked us to name it for him once he'd written his article, and we said, let's call it Fantasy of Manners. Mm-hmm. We thought uh-huh. that was both clever and accurate. Because really, the thing that com- that, that uh, unites them, and that uh, also is the umbrella for, there's a huge amount of it being written now, it's that it's more about society than it is about either magic or the wide open spaces. Right. 
of a of Tolkien and and his heirs. Um, it's very much about people and how they interact socially and uh, you know that. Yes. Yeah, I say it's cities, not always cities, but often that's where you find the highest concentration of people. Yeah, I would I would have added to that uh, that there's a tone to it which was. Uh, not characteristic of much earlier fantasy. It was a tone that was very much, uh, uh, well, gently and not so gently satirical. A tone very much influenced by Jane Austen. Um, and yeah. you, you see that, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me that suddenly, 30, tw 20 or 30 years ago, the whole science fiction and fantasy world discovered Jane Austen, and, which I think was a wonderful thing. It's about time, you know, they, they just barely figured out Dickens by then. Um, <laughs> and now you have uh, now you're right. It's part of the mainstream. It's part of the arsenal that that any science fiction or fantasy or slipstream or interstitial writer has at, available. And that the magic isn't always foregrounded. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. bizarre, and I didn't even bother to put magic in. But it's that's not really uh, the foreground. And I remember when Swords Point came out, it was shocking, and people talked about it. What is this crazy new thing, fantasy without magic? Mm -hmm. um, and now there's a whole bunch of them, and they're called historical fantasy. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even fantasy. We were, Jonathan and I think we were talking a bit last week about K.J. Parker, who frequently nothing fantastic happens in those stories. But they certainly feel like fantasy. They seem to take place in a kind of you know, fantasy, post-medieval, mercantile, emergent economy environment. Uh, and I don't think anybody objects to that at all. And in, in some cases, it's the language. It's actually the the highly stylized language that tips it into that. Whereas, funnily enough, um, we were talking before about who is it that's that's so, uh, who's my audience for the Swords Point audiobook. Mm -hmm. There are people who are horrified and disgusted by it. If you go to the Audible page, and I... Really? Really? Yes, it's really interesting. Ah! One of my favorite reviews is really negative, but he totally nails it. The people who are upset say... This isn't Jane Austen at all because the big headline is Neil saying it's as if Jane Austen wrote fantasy, and I said it's not Jane Austen at all. One guy said, and, and he's absolutely right. I was expecting a sort of Patrick O'Brien, Jane Austen, uh, um, um, what's her name? Oh gosh, uh, John Susanna Clark experience, yep. oh, yeah. which is all this very stylized language. He said the language is absolutely modern, which it is, and which a lot of people don't notice because they are distracted by the close and swords. And then he also said the nicest thing he could have, which he said, it's like Thackeray. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, Thackeray was one classic fantasy, though, The Rose and the Ring. It's what people are looking at. It, yeah, absolutely, and it's very sardonic. And it's I very, wonder if Neil's very, yeah, it. very funny as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but really, I mean, a pretty big influence on me, in fact, was Vanity Fair. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this guy got it, he's allowed to hate that, but it is <laughs> Let me ask you an entirely peripheral kind of a question, and that is, with the whole fantasy of Manus things happening, what it did, was there something in the water at that time? Because that's very much the same time the whole, you know, the original version of urban fantasy sort of arose, and to some degree, some of the stuff that's tagged as fantasy of manners can be seen as being some kind of subset of urban fantasy as well. Oh, noli contendere. <laughs> you be the critic of this right stuff. Uh, urban fantasy uh, seems to me changes its definition every three weeks. Wow. And, and now, now what they call urban fantasy takes place in small towns in, 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 in Washington State. 
Uh, what's urban about that? Well, you know, it's there's always a, a a slide between a critic's definition, a reader's definition, and the marketing department's definition. Well, yeah. And the marketing department is always going to go with what's selling right now that mm-hmm. we can call this. So, I mean, I, I part of the reason that we brought Welcome to Bordertown to life was because I was so horrified that I felt like Terry and the original Bordertown authors were not getting the credit for, to my mind, really having created the original urban fantasy, which was that moment, you know, just like when some of us decided we could do fantasy that was like Jane Austen, you know, Terry really encouraged her lot to write fantasy that Tolkien-esque you know, Celtic, mm-hmm. elfy fantasy that had motorcycles and rock and roll in it. That was huge in that day. Mm. And the reason that I feel safe in saying this is that I know that the people who became the great mythic urban fantasists of their generation, like Holly Black, mm-hmm. had read Border Town, and that was what told them this was possible. And you can't argue with that. That's the truth. Oh, I think it's absolutely, there's a tradition there, and I think... It, it, it's a useful tra- it's a useful tradition to have identified, but urban fantasy may not be the right way to identify it. I tried to track down the usages of urban fantasy, which is not in, in, in reviews and critical literature. And the earliest uses I found referred to Charles Williams, uh, because Charles Williams was the one inkling who set his stories in and around London. I mean, you got Lewis is off in Narnia somewhere, and Tolkien is off in Middle Earth, and here's Charles Williams writing about an urban setting, things that happen, you know, in, in, in modern England. And then a few, uh, maybe not even more than a couple of years after that, in American uh, discussions, you'd find urban fantasy referring to Fritz Leiber. He was writing stories like Smoke sure. Ghost, and they, they were just unlike anything. And a couple of decades later, it was Charles Dillon. So urban fantasy means something completely differently, uh, completely different to every generation, it seems. Well, there is such a strong tradition of, of fantasy being rural mm-hmm. um, that every time someone sits in a city, it's it can be kind of dramatic. Right. And um, Lieber, Lieber, however you say, Fritz Lieber, the, the, the Fafford and the Gray Mauser stuff was so important to me. And and keeps appearing and disappearing in people's consciousness. Oh, it comes does. back. So, well, Lochmar is, is is I think one of the archetypal cities in uh, in fantastic fiction, and, and and Terry Pratchett has certainly acknowledged that in his own work. Oh, good, good for him. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear you, you cite uh, Fafford and the Grey Master because I would never have particularly it wouldn't have occurred to me to think of it as being a great influence on your work, and yet I found more and more that seems to be something that people acknowledge. That's interesting. No, it definitely was. I was a I was an editorial assistant at Ace Books, and I had to write the jacket copy for the reprints of those. So okay. I read them, yeah, and I uh, loved them. And part of it was the the sort of guy the guy bonding thing. I wanted to mess with that. Um, that's really part of what I was doing in Swords Point. And some of it was the uh, the the city setting, the urban setting, and going, oh, you can do that, good, because I'm I'm a city girl. I, I'm not a a country person, and so I really wanted to be, you know, Tolkien and Le Guin, but but that wasn't my land. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. No, you, you go on, Gary. I was just going to say, as, as, as kind of parentheses, one of the things that always fascinated me was the kind of mutual admiration that Fritz Leiber and, and Joanna Russ had for each other. Um, that Fafford and the Grey Mouser shows up in one of Russ's uh, stories in the Adventures of Alex, and um, and. Uh, Alex shows up in one of Liber's stories, and they kind of corresponded with each other and got along. And I thought, that's an unlikely pairing until you think about it. And then after a while, it begins to make a lot of sense. 
Yeah. And I was going to say, I think the thing that's kind of synopsized it, looking at, backing at it now, because, I mean, the Delint kind of urban fantasy preceded Bordertown by a few years, but the fact the first Bordertown book had that Phil Hale cover on it, you know, the girl on the motorbike, the guy with the gun, mm-hmm. grinning out at the, out from the cover, really separated it from, and I have an enormous admiration for it, but from the, the Tom Canty, if you like, school of look for fantasy, which it could quite easily have had in that era. Yep, and that was all Terry. Terry art designed all of those. Uh-huh. Um, she worked with Canty, brought in Phil Hale. Canty and Hale were in the same art studio in the Back Bay in, in Boston, painting with Rick Berry. They were oh, wow. all studio mates. And oh. Terry was their friend, and he used to for weekends and hang out with them. I just met Rick Berry for the first time a year ago. He showed up at the ReaderCon. Um, and one of the things I always thought about this, and I was talking to him a little bit about this, visually at least, and I'm thinking back at the covers of the Board of Town uh, books, was that I, the sense I got uh, just before I read any of them, looking at the covers, was that, okay, here is fantasy looking over the fence at Neuromancer and saying, we shouldn't let those guys have all of that. <laughs> no, it's never that quite that. Really, I mean, you, we, I mean, we can have an attitude as well as any cyberpunk can. Yeah, that that was Terry. That mm-hmm. really was. She she art directed a ton of, of covers when she was at Ace, and you know people know her best as an editor in this country. In in Britain, I guess she's more known as a as an artist. And she's just got that amazing vision, and has always has never been afraid to push the edge. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, I mean, since Source Point, which we've circled around and around, is set in Riverside, which is, if you like, your urban fantasy location, this unnamed city that uh, you've revisited, without sort of going too much into the, your plans for the future, is it likely we will see, well, first of all, Riverside again in audio and then again in print at some point in the future? Oh, thank you for asking. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's okay to say that I am working out a contract with Neil, Neil Gaiman Presents and Audible to do the next two Riverside books. We're all very enthusiastic about it. Uh, we've already started talking about the music and the actors and, and how much of what we want to do. Um, I can go into a little detail about what we've decided, if you're curious. Oh, but basically, yes. oh great, good, okay. Uh, we're going to do The Privilege of the Sword, um, which wasn't the second one written, but is the second one chronologically in the narrative, and also I think is a lot um, more approachable uh, than the third one, The Fall of the Kings. Um, and it's an interesting novel because it's got two narrators. One is the first-person narrator of Catherine, uh, the Duke's niece, who's a 15-year-old girl observing all these shenanigans, and then the other is a third-person narrator who's... Uh, has scenes that she's not in and occasionally has scenes that she is in where she's being seen from the outside so what we've decided is that I'll read her mm-hmm. I'll read all her bits and a male narrator probably will read all the third person narrator bits but we're auditioning him very carefully because he has to do teenage girls sitting together and giggling <laughs> uh, but my producer knows a lot of really good uh, voice actors so that should be good and we're still discussing you know, what, wh- which bits will be cast and which won't uh, and who we should cast. Obviously, we want to repeat some of the same characters from Swords Point because mm-hmm. Privilege plays only 15 years later. And then she's all excited about how we can save money by having the same actors for Fall of the Kings, and I have to tell her they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> but 
actually keep saying vocally, well, if we've got, you know, Sonson in the studio, he could just read a few lines from his line. Like, no, the guy's 90 years old. He's dead. (laughs) (laughs) But that doesn't mean we can't give him a different part. (laughs) Hey, a couple of questions about about some of your other work as well, because it seems to me when you start talking about this augmented, uh, especially with music, the Thomas the Limer, which, if I'm not mistaken, is your most honored and awarded book, is just ideal for that sort of thing. Oh, Gary, I'm dying to do it. I'm dying to do it. But it's going to be really expensive if I do it right. Uh, I'm actually wondering. I have a friend who works for BBC Radio, and I would just kill to do it with BBC Scotland and get, because I really, it's so full of traditional ballads. And, you know, God rest him, Johnny Cunningham of Silly Wizard was a friend of mine in Boston, and uh, he wanted to do it with me. And I wish that I had been able to make that happen. I was kind of chicken at the time. I couldn't believe he was really saying that, and I wasn't aggressive enough. And you know, we both went off and did other projects. But but he put the idea in my head to work with traditional musicians and really make something amazing. When you're reading a novel, you want to hear that. I mean, it just is there yeah. right, on the page. Well, you know, I actually do a performance of it. Um, I've been doing it for years, where I do a sort of reader's digest of the book where I read and sing the ballads that are in the book at the points where they come into the book. Mm. Um, or actually I sing some of the ballads that inspired a given scene. Um, but I, you know, I love doing it. I do it live. I've done it at cons. I've done it you know, in, uh-huh. in uh, folk clubs and things. And I'll do it again at the drop of a hat. It's a, it's a big Rivera performance. And I think to record, I would go with prose. But yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I, I really, really want someone to be able to experience Thomas with the music that is both in the book and that makes the book happen and that inspired the book. Because that's from a very, very specific culture. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's not much of a mashup. The other question was... And, and just how and when I do it, I do not know. Well, I mean, but, but I hope I can. But the thing is, it's becoming possible. Those things are becoming more possible, and that's exciting. Uh, the other thing which I wanted to ask about, which goes back way to the beginning of your career, but may look completely different in today's media uh, communications environments. You were you were writing those uh, choose your own plot books or choose your own adventure books. Uh, choose your own adventure. Choose your own adventure. Yeah. I, I I read a couple of those because well there were there were kids uh, who wanted to, they loved them by the way. But it occurred to me that that was that those books I don't know if they're still around or not. But in the eighties, seventies, and eighties, those books came out in a pre. Um, pre-internet environment, pre-iPad environment, wouldn't it be, in pre-Skyrim environment, wouldn't it be much easier uh, to do those sort of things today? Or were those things an early version of interactive games? You know, I'm damned if I know, because interactive games were starting when I was writing them, Mm -hmm. and you'd think that it was just, oh, we have these now, we won't do these books anymore, but they're going neck and neck quite a long time, and I know that one of the guys who created the series has taken the ones, Ray Montgomery, because I just heard from him, that they're reprinting all the ones that he did, which unfortunately did not include mine, um, and people are buying them, I don't know, for nostalgia, but they're actually doing those books. You'd think Hmm. they would just pop them up online and have people push buttons. I don't know. I don't know. What I remember hearing from librarians and teachers all the time, and I did a bunch of school visits and did all that stuff, was that they were a way in for non-readers. Oh, I believe that. That, that not readers weren't too challenged by them. You could get to the end of a story in, you know, three pages, ten pages, and 
so I think there was probably a push to not have them become games, to keep them as books, because they would be a way of getting kids to well, hold a book in their hand and enjoy. That's a good point. Um, at the time you were writing those, I think I was still playing Adventure. Either one of you remember Adventure? It was a CPM text-based game. Oh. Where it, it, it was a fantasy adventure game where you were walking through a forest and you come across a, a door and you type in open door. That's what had happened. And it just it, it, it was fascinating. It, it went on and on and on and on. You would come across a dragon and you would type in kill dragon and it would type back, you don't have any weapons. You didn't have to back up. Now, it, it was the same basic principle. Uh, and it was essentially a choose-your-own-adventure minute-by-minute but completely text-based. And I think the, yeah. two, the two things were, and, and to some extent, even though I've, I've got friends who know a lot about Skyrim, uh, and when I try to follow it, I, I'm thinking, this is an extremely sophisticated and textured version of what I was doing on my little 64-bit K-Pro back in the early 80s. Because we all want that, because we all want to go into the story. Sure we do. So, since we're getting towards the end of our hour or so that we get to, to, to do this crazy podcast, let me just retouch on a question I asked a little while ago. Will we see Riverside again? Has the, have the doors closed there, or will there be more Riverside stories and novels and such? Oh, probably, because it's huge, this sort of giant trilopian construct with nine bazillion characters, mm-hmm. plus, you know, time changes, things happen culturally, um... I, I, I love it there, and I, I love seeing what it's going to do next. Um, also, I know what happens in between all the stories, um, and it seems cruel not to actually write them down. The challenge is making them stand alone. Um, but I like a challenge. I, I, I like to do side stories for anthologies or mm-hmm. whatever with the assumption nobody's ever heard of me or read the stories. Can I make this work as a standalone and yet, you know, deliver to the people who know the whole series something that they want to? Do you think the series... Uh, here's a bizarre question, but because um, uh, everybody's asking whether or not the success of Game of Thrones is going to open up, you know, more high-level expensive fantasy. And what I was thinking, I've become, um, which I will freely admit, an addict of Downton Abbey. Um, yes. And it seems to me that Swords Point is somewhere positioned between Downton Abbey and Game of Thrones in terms of the imaginative space it occupies. So you could get a kind of, um, like you say, Trilopian, uh, kind of Victorian class feel to it, and at the same time have the fantasy element, and get both audiences. You should do that. Clean up. <laughs> oh, God, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> I do have the same film agent as George R.R. R. Martin. I'll just have to okay. give him a call. <laughs> I'll give him a call now. I should also... <laughs> I, I should add, there's probably enough Riverside stories to do a straight Riverside collection between you and Delia. I am planning one. And and actually, uh, actually, since I, again, have no contract yet, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to. Um, The the editor that I uh, trust to work with had a really cool idea, which would also solve my problem about the standalone issues. He said, why don't you do a bunch of interstitial material in Mm -hmm. between them, just little like a letter, a diary entry, a, a page from a history book. Wouldn't that be fun? It would are you going to do that? Yes, I believe I am. Well, I should look forward to it. That'd be great. There were, there were a couple I, of great I, old, I, uh, it just brings you a couple of great old mysteries. One of them is by Dorothy Sayers called The Documents in the Case. 
And there's another one whose author I remember was called, I, I have this book, but I can't remember the author. And it was a basically a kit kind of thing, published in England in the 1930s. It was nothing but documents and uh, photographs and scrawled uh, messages on telegrams and that sort of thing. And it's just an enormous fun. I mean, basically you construct the story yourself from the documents that you're getting. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, this would be a way, almost the opposite, of not having to write a story, but giving an answer to, you know, a question that I know readers have had about a relationship or just playing, just playing. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, I would like to thank you, Ellen Kushner, very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure having you here. I have had too much fun, and I look forward to getting to sit around at a con with you guys sometime soon and continue the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely, definitely. Thank you very much.